As we hear the words of scripture this morning, we listen for the living word, Jesus Christ. Our reading today is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 30. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparation for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him. The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Would you please join me together as we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Well, good morning. Good to see you. And as we uh, go through the rest of our time, I invite you just to hold uh, this to, to, uh, in, in your hand. Uh, we've used this already. I'll explain it in just a second. Martha said, don't bop your friend with it, which is sort of like such an elementary school thing to say. Um, and yet, as the kids were going by, before she said that, I didn't know the rules, so I was just bopping the, you know, bopping the kids. And I love that we do this. I have uh, been in the church my whole life, and I remember having the palms, waving them, and I always laugh because you see the kids' personalities. I don't know what point we said, you know, we should just let the children run through the church with the palms. And you have some that are like, this is my moment. You know, and then you have some who are like, not so sure about it and some that want to go to mom and, and all that. But I love that we added the adults in at some point a few years ago, because it is kind of all, it's not just the kid thing. It's all of our thing. And honestly, the, the cry Hosanna, I think is very much an adult experience. Hosanna means save us, but literally, and this is hard to translate. It literally means save us now. There's an, there's an urgency component to it that comes from lived experience, that comes from having some recognition that the world is not as it should be, and that we don't know what to do with it. There is an almost an innocence too. We, we, like, it's like throwing down our hands and saying, we, we don't know. We don't know, it's such a mess. You know, uh, sometimes uh, Pastor Lewis and I talk about this in fishing terms. Anybody use a bait casting rod before? This is sort of, some of you will know this. And if it gets away from you, what happens? It just gets into a whole big tangled mess. And, it's, and the joy of fishing goes away for the hours now that you're like trying to untangle the mess. The mess is so tangled that we've, we just give up. And we say, God, you've got to do something. And you've got you to do it quick. That's Hosanna. That's a, a good translation of Hosanna. It is the experience of watching the news on Monday this week and not knowing what to do, not knowing what to say to our kids, God save us now. Where this is going to take us, this is Holy Week, this is the start of Holy Week, it's going to take us on a journey that takes us through the experience of seeing the world as it is and as it shouldn't be, and will lead us as we come to the end of our time today to the communion table where the scripture finds us today which is also about salvation. It is a reenactment of God's uh, saving work in the Old Testament for the people of ancient Israel as they were celebrating the Passover and uh, celebrating how God had saved them out of slavery in Egypt and delivered them into a promised land. And it was a claim of their part in the God's story, God's work through history. It was bringing that history into the present that is all about a special relationship with God and special responsibility. That's Israel. God saved us for special relationship and also special responsibilities, a reclaiming of our role. You're not a slave people, you're my people. And, I, and I'm gonna I need you to act as if you were sons and daughters of God in the world. I have a role for you as part of, of that saving story. So when we come to communion, as we will here in a bit, that's what we do. There's a part of our communion liturgy that says um, that we offer ourselves in union with Christ's offering to us. We, we say yes to Christ's yes. And uh, we offer ourselves as holy and living sacrifices. And truthfully, that is, that is everything. That is what we are here. The church carries on that legacy, stepping into the story, saying we are going to take that special relationship and say yes to it. 
and we're going to say yes to the special responsibility that comes with it in the world. To not just talk about salvation, but to be part of it, to join in God's story of salvation. Um, but what scripture does is hold us, uh, holds a mirror up to us and helps us see all of that playing out. And sometimes when we, when we hold up scripture to us, we see things that we want to see. And very often there are times uh, when we hold up th- that story of scripture and we see things we'd rather not see. Maybe you can relate. And that's true of the, the whole Bible. Uh, we see the best and worst of us. And there are times when we see the worst of the worst, not just in the world, but also in us. And today's scripture, today's story is a bit like that. We're walking into Holy Week together uh, and we're holding up a mirror and we're seeing things that are, are not so wonderful, seeing events that play out that are the worst of the worst. How the Son of God ends up on a Roman cross and how uh, Jesus is failed by individuals and institutions. And, and it's at, at sort of at every level the people close to him betraying him. And yet in the same events, we see the depths of of God's ability to save. That's the paradox of this. We see God's willingness to endure and God's, the extent of God's love for us. And so the, the events of today, uh, the events of Holy Week, as we come through that together, and I'll talk, uh, we'll talk later about Holy Thursday service, which is another way to step into the story of the Good Friday uh, self-guided experience at Greenwood this week on Friday, and then Easter Sunday. It's sort of like if if you're here today, you need to come back next week because we're going to go through the whole thing. And it's sort of uh, actually impossible to really hit Easter Sunday without hitting the things that we're going to talk about today, even though we'd rather not talk about them. Uh, and, and that really finds its culmination, I think, uh, in the story of Judas, the one who in the scripture today is sitting at the table with the, the disciples and with Jesus, reenacting that story of salvation, and at the same time, expressing his rejection of that story, living into uh, his no to what Jesus is asking to be a yes. And there are a lot of theories around the motive of Judas's betrayal and we could talk about the psychologize that uh, all day long. Maybe money had something to do with it. We know, as, as we heard in the scripture, that, that Judas betrayed Jesus by going to the chief priests, so the religious authorities, and then the political authorities come together and, uh, and they take Jesus out. That they offered him 30 pieces of silver, which uh, would probably be around ten dollars or $15,000 actually today but we will discover that that's not enough money in the end for Judas. Maybe it's an ideological thing. And as we think about a world that has a tangled mess uh, and a lot of different ideologies, people aligning around their ideologies, that is going on in this story as well. Judas had some hand in the money, but perhaps he had a hand in the money because he wanted a hand in the control of how things would go. And the way this story plays out is very much Judas taking control, making things happen for whatever reason, whatever motive. Maybe that's not as important. We, we may think, uh, many do, that Judas was a religious zealot. He was trying to bring a revolution of some kind. And that impulse it, it somehow in religious language involves doing something, taking action, regaining control. It's the opposite of Hosanna, Lord, save us now. It's like, I'm going to make 
stuff happen. Maybe Judas just had said yes to Jesus, but was getting tired of Jesus. And that's not that all, all that uncommon of an occurrence. Jesus keeps not doing the thing that I want Jesus to do. That's going to play out for all of us in some way. And Matthew's gospel gives us the precipitating event of the betrayal. So in the verses just immediately preceding this, we read, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Now, some other translations will point to Judas specifically with this. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then this is what he says. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And I kind of wonder, uh, especially in the way Matthew tells the story, if that's not just the moment that Judas knew that he was not on board anymore. Truly, I tell you, Jesus uh, continues, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so the very next verse, we find Judas going to betray Jesus. I think the big question for me is how did Jesus not get through to Judas. This story about salvation, the story about hope, the story that we will celebrate next Sunday, there is one person absent, and it's Judas. How did Jesus not get through to him? Because surely he was there for all of it, for uh, the, the call to hang out with the 11. He knew the, the system, the drill, the rhythms, the private handshake, so to speak. He felt the bread and the fish multiply in his hands. He had seen the miracles and he had been a part of them as they declared the good news and exercised demons and brought healing. Like all the others, he witnessed signs, signs and wonders and heard teachings, both the public ones and the inner explanations around the campfire. He had been on the boat when the storm had been calmed and the disciples looked at each other stunned and said, who is this that even in the wind and the waves obey him? If you ask me, if you had uh, said somebody's going to betray Jesus and we didn't know the story, I might have picked somebody else. Now we see this and the story is always told in the gospels from the rear view mirror. It is as if you've been through the trauma and now you're going and you're looking back at it and trying to make sense of it. Uh, so when we talk about Judas, everybody knows it's Judas. But going into it, I don't know that I would have picked Judas. And maybe you, maybe you wouldn't have either, partly because he's so much in the background, so to speak. You might have picked Peter, who's impulsive, who, who would just kind of always did the wrong thing. Or you, might have, you might have picked um, Thomas, who we discover along the way is pretty skeptical and not easily convinced. Because there's money involved, you might have picked Matthew because he had been a tax collector and probably was not opposed to kind of making the money work creatively. But no, it was, it was Judas. Both John and Luke pointed to some sort of satanic influence that evil entered him, the devil entered into him. And 
And I consider that a real, a, a description rather than prescription. And a lot of times as we look at scripture, we need to understand, is it descriptive or prescriptive? I think they're trying, again, from the rearview mirror to describe this thing that has happened. Somehow evil had, had gotten in there. And as is so often the case, it's not, it's not evident until it is. How many of us have looked back and said, we just didn't see it coming? I don't think this means that Judas is this, the necessary bad guy in the story, the villain in our history, the, the, the representative of the dark side, the fill in the blank. I don't think his fate was fixed. We find Jesus at the table saying to him, woe to the one who betrays the son of man. It would be better for you, uh, for that person not to have been born. But I don't think that means that Jesus is rejecting Judas. I think he is talking about a warning that is is real and important. A warning of how this thing will go if Judas will follow it all the way through. It's a description of just how bad it can get, which again is a very adult realization. It's not news to God and it's, you know, if we're honest, it's not news to us that things can go bad. The story holds up that mirror to us. Judas is the one person who cuts him off from the possibility, himself off, cuts himself off from the, the possibility of redemption. He gives up that ability. After the crucifixion, he tries to give the money back and then he commits suicide. How did it come to this? How did someone who walked with Jesus get here? Well, I think as this holds up the mirror, I think we can be honest. Sometimes we look at God's people, we look at the state of the world and we think it should be different. And then we wonder how people who along the way should have kind of, it should have gotten in there somehow. Something kept them from allowing the grace to sink all the way down. That this is actually a part of the human experience, that the insiders are no less threat than the outsiders. And just because you're religious, doesn't mean that you're not also actively engaged in resistance. And so let me give you that word today as we think about a frame for Judas and for us, a frame for the mirror that is this story. I think that's the word resistance. Now I have to tell you, I looked it up 17 times to make sure that's how you spell it because in my mind, you spell it different than that. Um, resistance. I think Judas was the ultimate resistor. He resisted the teachings of Jesus. He re resisted the influence of Jesus. He resisted giving up control. He resisted the love that was offered to him, the relationship that was offered to him. And in those terms, resistance is a pretty human experience too. It's something we all do. It's part of the equation. If love is something that can be accepted or rejected, there's always in the equation some opportunity to resist. And it's part of the, the, the thing that maybe we don't understand about ourselves. We have a phrase, we bite the hand that feeds us. The very people working for our good sometimes become a threat to us because they tell us things we don't want to hear or they call us to things that we don't want to be. We all resist. We resist God's guidance. We resist God's grace. And in doing so, we resist our true identity. And I think if we could just pause there, I think that there's something to this that we all resist who we truly are. It is part of the, the nature of sin 
When we say sin, we don't mean that we just do bad stuff. What we mean is that we resist our humanity, our true identity. And Christ reveals that. It is about our identity. Recently, I saw a family um, out. It was at uh, Chick-fil-A, actually, and uh, which tells you, um, because it's the one on Campbell Lane, it's been pretty recent because it's back open. I don't know if you knew that or not. Whew, thank goodness. And... Um, but it's Sunday, so now I've created a quandary for some of you because you're not going to go after church. Um, but I was, so I was, I was at Chick-fil-A, and I was talking to this family uh, th- that I know, and they, a uh, sweet family, and they have a little girl who's probably, I don't know exactly, three? And um, just sweet as can be. And then the older, wiser brother who's in kindergarten. And um, so I'm talking to them, and they had just been to a play uh, that was some version of Frozen. I don't know, fr- Frozen. So some of you probably you know, know what I'm even talking about. I just heard about it through their eyes. Let it go, let it go. And um, so I, they said that, and the little girl steps forward and says, I saw Elsa. She was so sweet, so excited about it. And because of that joy, older brother kind of needed to bring some realism to the thing. So he steps forward immediately and says, actually, it was not the real Elsa. It was some kid from my school dressed up like her. (laughs) Thank you for the clarification. (laughs) Somehow he needed to make sure the identity was clear. Clarify everyone's true identity. And that's what Jesus does. He clarifies our true identity. Uh, And I think most of us would rather do something else. (laughs) Like, it sounds like too much for us. As we look at Jesus and how how this story plays out, we say, maybe I don't think I'm signing up for that. I think that is part of the process for every single one of us. That there's ultimately some resistance in all of us. And the point is, point by point, are we going to walk into who we truly are or are we going to say no? Are we going to say yes but then at some, at some point say no. Does that make sense? That God created us, scooped us out of the dirt to partner with him in the redemption of the world, the very thing that we want, the salvation, the, the good, the peace, the joy, the workings of it all together. That's why we are here. But part of the sin thing, for whatever reason, is that we don't want that. We resist that. It is literally what sin means, missing the mark. I think that missing the mark is our failure to understand who we really are. And then our working against God at every point to resist it. Now, if we cooperate with God's grace, grace shapes us. This is the story of the gospel. Grace shapes us, reforms us into who we were intended to be all along. And if we will simply say yes along the way, it changes us. But the converse is also true. Resistance to God's grace also shapes us. It affects who we become. If we resist kindness, we become hard-hearted, thick-skinned, mean, angry. And in those terms, this all starts to make sense because we, we all have some version of that experience. When we resist joy, 
we start to see ourselves as victims in life, start to see the world through a certain lens. If we resist patience, we become impulsive. If we resist generosity, we walk through life with our hands like this, with, without any ability for God to fill them with good things. It begins to shape our lives. And if we resist love, it paves the way, point by point along the way. Ultimately, in Judas' story, to betrayal, to betray ourselves, to betray God, and to betray our true identity. Judas shows us that you can be in the right place at the right time with the right influences and still be impervious. Still have an impenetrable penetrable force field that keeps the grace from sinking in. C.S. Lewis calls this successful rebels to the end. And then he says, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. That's where resistance leads us to the point where we don't want to get out. We don't want to be saved. We don't want and give up on good things. And certainly we don't want to give up control. And here's how I think that happens with Judas. I think Judas said yes, but he reserved the right to say no. He wanted to follow Jesus to a point. And Jesus asked him to go beyond that point. And that is how it happens every time. Tony Campolo tells a story about that. One day he's, uh, uh, he's in his office. He's a professor at Eastern University. And this father brings his graduate student's son, kind of drags him into the office, sits him in the chair in front of him and says, you got him into this. I need you to get him out. And then he explains that his son has become a Christian and is taking it far too seriously in his mind, that he's out in the slums of Philadelphia working with the poor and giving money away, too much money away, and that he's spending time with people that he shouldn't be spending time with. And then the father says to Campolo, don't get me wrong, I don't mind being Christian up to a point. And Campolo has told that story around the world so that he can say this part next. These are his words. How many of us are like that father? Aren't all of us willing to be followers of Jesus up to a point? How willing are we to recognize the truth of the Christian martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so it's been said that we will either be willing to kill for our faith or be willing to die for it. And that's all the difference in the world. And Judas chooses the wrong difference. And it is a tempting difference, especially when there is a threat. Even when we see the world isn't as it should be, even we, and maybe especially because of the tangled mess that we find things in, at some point, all of us are tempted to say, I'm going to take this back into my control. Judas chose the wrong difference and many many do. But contrast Judas with Jesus. We find ourselves at this table, Jesus warning Judas not to do it. And then Judas moving ahead with the plan. In the next hours after his exchange with Judas, Jesus will be in the garden of Gethsemane praying, not my will, but yours be done. When they come to arrest him, he'll tell Peter to put his sword away. He will stand before Pilate and be accused of things that aren't true and you don't find a lick of defensiveness in him. 
Isaiah 53 describes this, actually. He was oppressed and afflicted. This scripture was claimed of Jesus. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before the shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Christ didn't fight back. Didn't take the control back. Left the results and the outcomes and the narrative in God's hands. And so revealed our true humanity. This is our opportunity as well to put the narrative into God's hands and to trust him. Jesus embodies that. C.S. Lewis writes of this moment, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Later, hanging on the cross with arms outstretched, he will proclaim freedom through forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Contrast Judas's angst and his anger and his hollow striving and his control to Jesus's submission and his trust and his freedom. Someone has said of the scene of the cross, everyone is out of control except the one person who gave it up anyway. Contrast Judas's need to be in charge of the outcomes with Jesus' ability to care only about being present and faithful to God in the process. Contrast Judas's rejection of his true identity with Christ's acceptance of his. And so as we conclude uh, and kind of move into Holy Week, let me give you this way of thinking Two men died in the story that we will tell this week. One of those deaths was tragic. And the other was redemptive. And that story of redemption is the story that we're being asked to say yes to and to keep saying yes to. To keep saying yes to, even when it calls more and more from us. To continue to say yes and to trust. I think Jesus was still offering that opportunity to Judas to the very end. And as we celebrate that story and as we tell it, as we come to communion, I think that same offer is for us to give up our need for controlling outcomes, to give up our ability to say yes, but maybe I'll say no later, to hold out our resistance no longer just to lay it down. Now, I don't think that is a magic wand that changes everything, but I think it is a decision that we walk into that does, in fact, change everything. And so, uh, as I said, we've had these palms in our hands because the story is really of Palm Sunday that transitions into the Passion Week. And so this symbol of praise becomes a symbol also of submission as we walk into the story. So as we come to communion today, you're gonna to have the opportunity to bring this with you and to lay it down and for that to mean something. It's an act of submission. It's a handing over. It's saying, I'm saying yes, and I'm not gonna say no to, to the God who is, who is trustworthy to the cross and to the empty tomb. When we come to communion, we will be invited into that story to give our lives away to, in fact, to find our lives by losing them, 
to take up our cross and to follow and to accept our true identity as Christ, recognizing that we will continue to resist this point by point and God's grace will continue to invite us. Today's story reminds us of where that resistance can lead. It is a sobering story. It is a mirror that shows us something we would rather not see. And Judas's death is the final step into a long journey of darkness, and that journey is possible. Jesus's death is a step into a story of redemption, and that story is possible too. Don't resist it. Let's pray. God, we hold in our hands a symbol of our desire to be in control, to have life on our terms, to say a qualified yes. We see our sin in this frame. It's not just bad stuff we do. It is an active rebellion against your goodness, your relationship, and, and our role. So give us the strength and give us the faith today to, to name that, to name that resistance, to see that in our behaviors and in our attitudes. And precisely because we don't know what to do with it, just to lay it down, to give it over, and to join with those who said, save us now. As we come to the story of that salvation in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and his life, death, and resurrection, and in whose name we pray. Amen.